Another small announcement for tonight, well not small, um, is that Andy's going to be away from us for, for about six months, August, uh, after tonight. So this is your last night with us tonight, isn't it? Until you go away. Um, so as I pray for us, uh, for our hearing of God's word and, and, and thinking about it, I'm going to pray for Andy and Sarah for the coming months. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you've brought us together as your family, as, your brother, as brothers and sisters, as your children. Father, we pray for uh, Andy and Sarah over the coming months. We pray that you protect Andy away at sea. We pray that um, you keep him close to you that, you, um, that you protect him from any temptation. Please help him grow even while at sea. Help him get to know the, the Padre. And um, we pray also for Sarah. Please protect her um, while Andy's away. Please comfort her and, um, and be with her. We pray for us all tonight. We, we pray that as we open your word, as we open this passage together in 2 Corinthians, please, be at, um, please, please do your thing in our hearts. Please, please strengthen our hope specifically this evening. And, um, and as, as our hope grows, we pray that you give us the power to live for you with, with clarity of mind and conviction and love in the present. Amen. So, Stephen Fry, you might have heard of Stephen Fry, you might have seen him before. He's an actor, he's a comedian, and he's been really open about his bipolar disorder in the past. He likens psychological disorders or states, psychological states, uh, to the weather. Sometimes it's cloudy, sometimes it's rainy, sometimes the sun shines through. Fry, Fry is adamant that we need hope. He thinks it's uh, important for us to acknowledge the cloudy weather, but it's even more important that we believe the sun will come out tomorrow. That's, that's in his words. Our vision of the future affects our present. That's why we need hope. Our vision of the future affects our present. That's why we need hope. But what if we're living in a time and a culture where hope is being eroded. Uh, what if many of us and many of those around us genuinely wonder whether the future gives any reason for hope? In an interview, a famous American author, her name's Ayana Mathis, uh, she was interviewed by Oprah, as you can see, and her book was uh, put on the Oprah reading list, which, which is one reason why she's so famous now, uh, Ayana Mathis, and she was interviewed and asked this question. Which subjects are underrepresented in contemporary fiction? That was the question. Ayana replied that today's writers are flummoxed by joy. They seem to have decided that despair, alienation and bleakness are the most meaningful and interesting descriptors of the human condition. She continues, in our end of days malaise, we're suspicious of the fullness of life. And I think we see this in the TV shows and the movies that we watch. Uh, think of Breaking Bad, think of House of Cards, Mad Men, The Walking Dead, The Hunger Games. They're all filled with end of days malaise, this end of, end, end of the world sort of nuclear and environmental disasters, zombie invasions and anti-heroes. This sort of end of days malaise that Ayana spoke of is sort of playing itself out in the movies and the TV shows we watch. 
And if the vision of the future that we have affects our present, I wonder what the effects are in our young people of having a future painted like that always put before them. I won't go into speculating what those effects might be. But our vision of the future affects our present. That's why we need hope. Hope is vital. Hope is the confidence that the sun will come out tomorrow, as as Fry said. It allows us to keep on joyfully living in the present with conviction, no matter what's happening around us. So in around August last year, we began a sermon series in the letter of 2 Corinthians. And today, or tonight, we're picking up where we left off. So you might remember that in the New Testament, we have two letters to the Corinthians. But overall, there were probably around five that were written. But in the two letters that we do have in the New Testament, it's pretty clear that the relationship between the apostle and the church in Corinth, the group of Christians in Corinth, hasn't always been smooth sailing. And a major emphasis of the first seven chapters, which is the first major section in the letter, is Paul trying to show that despite appearances, despite what they think, he is the real deal. He is a true apostle of Christ. The Corinthians thought that an apostle of God should look impressive. Uh, an apostle should, should be successful and should, and should be rich and should somehow make them likewise impressive and rich and successful. The Corinthians didn't understand that the Apostle Paul was living the new creation in the present. They didn't understand that he was living the new creation in the present. What do I mean by that? The future new creation, our hope, will be a place of thoroughgoing other person-centeredness in service of God. That's where we're headed. That's, that's the new creation. But the present age, the one in which we live in and which we see all the time in the news, which we see when we look around, is not a place characterised by thoroughgoing other person-centeredness, but by selfishness, by trying to get ahead by selfish ambition, by trying to look more impressive than the person next to us. And that would probably be a good description of the Corinthian church. But Christians, and the Apostle Paul is doing this, are to live the new creation life, the, the life of utterly self less love in service of God they're to live that life now so Paul didn't care to be a rhetorically impressive figure he didn't care about dressing really well and looking really impressive he didn't care about being that sort of really sort of drop your mouth impressive leader figure he didn't live according to the values of this age he lived according to values of the next age selfless love and so in comparison to the impressive looking leaders in Corinth Paul's leadership looked shabby. He didn't look very impressive. And so the Corinthians were tempted to leave not only the Apostle Paul, but more crucially for Paul, they were tempted to leave the gospel that he had told them. And so despite the lack of money, despite the lack of impressiveness in his ministry, he writes this letter to show them, to try to convince them that he is the real deal. That he's living the new creation life now amongst them. And he wants them to do that too. And so now, more specifically, in today's passage, chapter 5, 1 to 10, we're in the middle of an argument that's all about why Paul doesn't lose heart despite the difficulty and the suffering around him. Why he doesn't lose heart. And his difficulties and sufferings, that they weren't small. Let's just put it that way. And so for us... When serving Christ is a slog, 
when it means making a costly decision, when it means losing friends, when it means facing criticism, when life following Jesus is just a weight on our shoulders, what will keep us going? The passage we read is part of Paul's answer to that question, and it has a lot to do with hope. So we're going to begin by looking, verses, uh, at looking at verses 1 to 5, and, and that's specifically focusing on the vision that sets Paul in motion in the present, verses 1 to 5. And then we're going to look at verses 6 to 10, which fleshes out how that vision of the future affects his present. So verses 1 to 5. Look with me, please. It's dense. This passage is dense. Um, so you'll see the very first word is the word for, sort of it's like a uh, because. It, that means it's connected to what's just been said. He sort of said something, then he says for. It sort of flows on from what has just been said. So let's read verse 18 from chapter 4. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Now, it's sort of ironic that he uses this, this setting his sight on the unseen because you can't see the unseen, but that's what he's doing. He's setting his sight on the unseen. And it's that reality that propels Paul in the present, propels him and motors him, despite how difficult the present is. So verses 1 to 4. As I read this, maybe look at this table that's going to come up. Um, it's, it sort of helps us helps hopefully you see what Paul's doing here. He's sort of constantly flipping from present and future. So verse 1, For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed... Now, the earthly tent is a metaphor for our physical bodies. So, for we know if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by hands. Now, that eternal house is our resurrection body. Meanwhile, we groan longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. Verse 4, For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Do you see the comparison? The comparison between the, the present and the future. There's the earthly tent the body, which is obviously uh, meant to give us connotations of temporariness and discomfort. Uh, we've all been camping, and um, and we, we usually decide not to go back. So this is an example of a tent. Um, but on the other hand, there's the permanent, eternal home built and designed by God. And as the passage says, uh, this is mortality swallowed up by life. Mortality swallowed up by life. Wow, what a phrase. Um, this, is, this is a metaphor again, which is meant to uh, speak of comfort in comparison to the discomfort of the tent. It's meant to speak of permanence in comparison to the temporariness of the tent. And notice in verse 1, this is not built by hands. I'm not saying I'll resurrect. That's not going to be our future, exactly, even though it does look comfortable. It's, it's a metaphor. Um, verse 1, it says, uh, this uh, dwelling is not built by hands. Hands, human hands. You might know that the Apostle Paul was a tent maker. He, he um, was a tent maker on the side to, to um, give him money to spread the gospel. And he knew firsthand, no matter how hard he tried, no matter how much effort he put into a tent, it would never withstand the wind and the weather forever. 
a tent tears. A human made tent tears. But the home, uh, the building from God, built by God, is different. So Paul can't help seeing his present, which is of heavy suffering, in light of his future. This future reality keeps him motoring in the present, keeps him serving Jesus, keeps him loving, keeps him putting the interest of the Corinthians ahead of his own, keeps him preaching the gospel to crowds who don't want to hear it sometimes. The hope keeps Paul in the game. I think we all know the power of hope. Uh, at college, I, I think despised is a too heavy a word, but I did not like exams. I much preferred essays, taking your time and thinking about things. Exams was a rush, it was stressful. You had to sort of memorise the course's content in a week. I found it stressful. But in those exam periods, all I had to do was think of the three weeks off you'd get after. I mean, uni life. You guys go to uni. Um, and when Arian was um, going through labour, when she was pushing her way through, um, the thought of the baby to come was all we needed to, um, to keep on going. There was a moment uh, in which the midwife said to us, uh, your baby, it was towards the end obviously, your baby is very close. She said something like that. And um, I was in a bit of a haze. And as soon as she said that, as soon as the baby was around the corner, I was just like, boom, I'm on. Like, I'd been awake through the night. But, um, but knowing the, f- the future is soon or certain or something gives us energy in the present. So even though Paul has before him this tent of a body, it's tearing. It's not impressive. It's not what he fixes his attention on. He fixes his attention on the unseen future, the resurrection body, and, and all that that means when, when he's in that resurrection body. He'll be not only in a resurrection body, but he'll be in a world renewed. And it's this focus that gets him through the hardships of the present. Secular psychology knows the importance of hope. Uh, my reading has shown me that um, studies have shown that employees who have high hope scores have fewer days off work, they're usually more productive at work, they're happier, they have, have higher pain thresholds, and they have a longer life expectancy. But the thing is, that hope in the secular psychology world is different to Christian hope. According to one website, it's a popular website, positivepsychology.org.au, this is what hope is. Hope is a state of mind derived from one's perceived ability and in one's circumstances to achieve certain goals. So hope is a state of mind derived from one's perceived ability and in one's circumstances to achieve certain goals. Hope is very dependent on your ability and the circumstances being right. But Christian hope is totally different. Christian hope has nothing to do with our ability. It has nothing to do with our circumstances that are around us. Christian hope has everything to do with God. It has everything to do with his promises and his ability to come through on those promises and his faithfulness to his promises. Christian hope has everything to do with God, not us. 
And Paul knows that. And Paul's got his sight on this unseen future. He's not optimistic that things will end well. He's not um, confident in his own ability or in the circumstances that he sees around him. No. I mean, if, if he was looking around him, he'd be thinking there's no hope. But yet he acts as if his future is guaranteed. Because it's guaranteed by someone he can trust. So verse 5. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose, to be clothed with this permanent dwelling, is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. So of course, when you buy a house, you've got to give the bank a deposit to show the bank that you're serious about this purchase. God has given us the Spirit as a deposit, and it's guaranteeing what is to come. So God's Spirit which lives inside us, our believers, Christians, is God letting us know that he's serious about this promise, this promised hope. And so our experience of the Spirit is God's guarantee that he will come through on this hope. And so your experience of the Spirit over time convincing you that a certain habit or action is not right, that is, the Spirit convicting you of sin, can comfort you. That's God's guarantee to you. It's God's deposit that your future is guaranteed. When you, when you feel the Spirit prompting you to do something, to talk to someone about Jesus, to, to love this person, to show kindness to this person, to go out of your way to do this, again, that's the guarantee of the future. Or when you experience the closeness of God in Difficulty in suffering, even when you don't have the words to express how hard things are at the moment, that's evidence of God's guarantee to you. It's God's guarantee to you that one day, one day, you will, like you, each of you sitting down here, will experience the new creation. God's world made new, God's world restored in a new body. A place that was described by the Revelation passage. The Holy Spirit is the basis of our hope. It's God's guarantee and God will not go back on his word. It's a little strange that we need a guarantee from God as if God's word isn't trustworthy. But of course, God gives us that guarantee for us. He wants us to know with all of our heart... That we can live now knowing our future is taken care of. He wants us to know that. And that's exactly how Paul lived. He lived wholeheartedly in, in this life, in the present, for Jesus. Because he knew God's guarantee and he knew he could trust it. And so we're going to move on to the next few verses. What does that look like for the hope to be lived out in the present? Or in line with the sermon series title. What does it look like to live lives of new creation now? So verses 6 to 10. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. 
So first of all, Paul's life in the present, sort of fixed on this hope, means that he's confident. He's confident. Verse 6, therefore we are always confident. Verse 8, we are confident, I say, and prefer to be away from the Lord, the body, and at home with the Lord. Paul is more than willing to admit his preference, that he'd be, I prefer to be at home with the Lord. But that preference of his doesn't make him grumble in the present. Instead, it suffuses him, like I keep on saying, with confidence. It gives him steel in the face of hardships. One commentator writes, Paul can abandon himself entirely to his mission because he knows that God will not abandon him in death. He knows the Lord has determined a glorious destiny for him. So that's the first thing that living in light of our future hope does or results in. It results in confidence in the present to face any difficulty that we might come across. Second, living in the present with eyes fixed on the future means living by faith and not by sight. That's verse 7. Living by faith and not by sight. Faith sees the unseen. Faith sees the currently unseen. So in Hebrews 11 verse 1, uh, it says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance of what we do not see. That's what faith is. And so living by faith means that we have an entirely different vision before our eyes. So some people have a vision before their eyes. It's a bit of a dream that they live for. It's, it's, it's of, you know, uh, a house with a view. It's, a, it's of all, having all the latest technologies, about having all the latest gadgets. It's about being famous. I don't know what it might be, but many have this sort of uh, this vision that's very visible in the world. You sort of see people with it and you think, I want to be like that. That's a seen vision. But living by faith sets before your, your eyes a different vision. And it's a much better vision. It's really hard to paint a picture of this future that God has for us, the the vision that we have before our eyes, because it literally does break the categories that we have to understand what it will be like. It's it's better than we can imagine our future. C.S. Lewis uh, is sort of famous for these words, but I'll, I'll tell them to you. I think they're really great. So he says that we can be like ignorant children who want to go on making mud pies in the slum because we cannot imagine what it is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We can too often think we're having the best time living for what we see when what we're offered is just so much better. An offer of a holiday by the sea. And that's the same for us. We've got this this hope that, that God's given us it's there for us to sort of look forward to, to, to live for, to set our life's direction on. But too easily we get caught up in making mud pies in the slum. So what does it look like to, to live a life with, with, by faith and not by sight? Well, as I've sort of been talking about it, it, it an example of it will, will not be living life for wealth accumulation. And so an example might be a young doctor who, uh, instead of trying to... Um, work out what specialty might result in the biggest pay packet at the end of the year, instead chooses to work rurally or chooses to become a medical missionary in some really poor part of the world because he knows his future is way better than any pay packet could be. 
He lives by faith and not by sight. Uh, another example might be someone who's finding life hard uh, at school, maybe someone who's being bullied at school or at work, or someone who's been looked over for a promotion, someone who has been um, recently diagnosed with an illness. To live by faith and not by sight is to maybe pray at that point, to pray, God, lift my gaze, help me see this vision, this hope, Help me know that the way things are now won't always be the way they are now. I could go on with example after example of what living by faith and not by sight could be. Um, and I, th- I think I might suggest some practical things about how to do this. Uh, how to live by faith and not by sight really quickly. And this isn't something we can really put in practice the first one anyway. Romans 5 says this. Uh, not only that, we rejoice in our afflictions... This is, this is the Apostle Paul too. Because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character. And proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us, Paul goes on, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who he has given to us. You can see he's on the same sort of uh, thread there. Um, so know that... Suffering in the present builds your longing for this hope. It builds your character, it builds your perseverance, and it ultimately builds your hope. So know that. That's crucial to know. We sort of talked a bit about this on Friday Night at Lights, sort of. Uh, Second, why don't you talk about your hope with your friends? Now, if you knew that you were going to your favourite place in the world, uh, for me, that's probably... um, uh, Switzerland, my, my, um, my sort of, well, I'm half Swiss. Um, if you knew you were going to your favourite place in the world, uh, you'd at least tell your good friends about it. Now, let's just say you're going to somewhere better than your favourite place in the world. And let's just say you're going to go there for not a week, not two weeks, but, you know, forever. Um, wouldn't you talk about that with your friends? This is something to get your, sort of your heart racing. This is going to be good. It's going to be really good. So I think we should talk about it with my friends. I remember one time I was in year seven and me and my, my good friend at the time, we were walking home and we thought it'd be a good idea to talk about heaven. And it was fun. I still remember that conversation. You should talk about your hope because it's, it's, it's a reality. And, and finally, um, never use the hashtag FOMO. Never use the hashtag FOMO. So uh, FOMO stands for fear of missing out. Um, I might not sort of lay the law and say never use it, but at least sort of never live according to that fear of missing out. Um, There's no fear of missing out as a Christian. So imagine when you've been there 10,000 years, as that line is from the the famous hymn, do you really think you'll say, oh, I I really wish I I went to Paris a second time? No, there's no fear of missing out. (laughs) I'll answer that rhetorical question for you. Okay, let's move on. So the third thing we see, uh, how the hope fleshes itself out in Paul's life, is um, that he lives his life with one goal, and that is to please the Lord Jesus. And he continues in verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Judgment. Now that doesn't sound very attractive. It sounds like maybe a brick wall that you'd avoid if you were driving a car. And 
If it weren't for faith in Christ, judgment really would be something you'd want to avoid. But faith, being sure of what we do not see, knows the grace and mercy of God. It knows the complete forgiveness available to to those who trust Jesus. Complete forgiveness no matter what has been done in the past. Faith knows that when they appear before the judgment seat of Christ, we won't experience what we deserve. And that's because of Christ's work on the cross, which we'll look at a, a bit next week. But also, faith is never without good works, which Peter's going to explore for us at light in a few weeks. Faith always works itself out in love and goodness. And so when we do stand before the judgment seat of Christ, whatever that's going to look like, when when we do stand before the judgment seat of Christ, we can be absolutely confident that we won't be surprised. Because of God's work in our life by the Holy Spirit, because of our living by faith and not by sight, we live for the day when the Lord Jesus Christ will say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what Paul lived for. He lived for his, to please the Lord Jesus. And that's what we can live for. So what Stephen Fry said is true. Uh, it's vital to believe that the sun will come out tomorrow. But Fry admits that he has no real reason for hope. Uh, in what I came across, what I read, he acknowledges that none of the reasons for hope that he came up with have a particular logical purpose or convincing reason to exist, but they somehow keep him going. Fry is an atheist, and so uh, according to him, we're basically sort of biological machines hurtling through a meaningless universe on a big or small rock. So what can there be to hope in? And he concludes at the end, you might as well live. That's what Fry says. You might as well live. And I think it's this vague sense of hopelessness that's playing itself out, like I said before, in the TV shows and the movies we're seeing around us. But the Christian has a vision of the future that gives us the power in the present to live lives of confidence, of of love, of other person-centred love, of conviction. The Christian fixes their eyes on the new creation when all things will be made new when we'll be given our permanent homes, our resurrection body, so that we can live lives of new creation in the present. God's already working that new life in us by the Holy Spirit and that vision of the future helps us live that way now. So our hope isn't grounded in wishful thinking. Jesus really did, in history, rise from the dead. And he has given us his spirit, which is already working new creation in us now. And that's a guarantee that we will experience our certain hope. Let me read you these words that I came across. If all things end in the valley of the shadow, perhaps the well-adjusted are those who resign themselves to the gloom. But if Christ is risen, there is mountaintop joy, a future worth living for, healing, 
and peace. It all comes back to Jesus. He's the one who secures our glorious future. In him we have reasons for hope. Reasons to share with a needy world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this future that you've just given to us by your grace. Father, please grow in us this confidence that you will bring this about. Give us hope. And we pray that this hope converts itself in a life lived with courage, a life living by what is unseen by faith, and a life lived for the glory of your Son, Jesus. Amen.